I am very happy today to be joined by Khadija Mohamed Churchill, founder and CEO of Quenza Tukule. Quenza Tukule is a Swahili name that means first, let's eat. The company is a social enterprise, meaning a for-profit organization with a strong social goal and perspective. And it operates, at least for now, in some of Nairobi's informal settlements. Khadija was born and educated in Kenya. She then studied and worked in the UK before returning to Kenya, where she founded Kwenza Tukuri. Today, she's going to tell us why she did so and also how she is leading this growing organization with a clear dual purpose of doing well enough financially while doing good for the world. Khadija, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. So my first question is around Kenya. Uh, tell us about population, uh, opportunities, resources, and also a little bit about the challenges. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, so Kenya is in East Africa. Uh, it's got a population of about 40 million. Um, we are a developing country, as, as you would know. Um, most of our resources are in human capital, mostly okay. highly educated uh, population, very young, very entrepreneurial. So we've got a lot going on for the country. Um, we also have a huge poverty um, issue where most of the people, for example, in Nairobi, live um, in low-income areas. So it's a great country. Uh, it's hot. It's lovely, uh, but like any other country, it's got some challenges too. Population rural versus cities. I think 60% rural and 40% cities. Do I have this right? Yes, yes, but okay. there's a huge uh, rural to urban migration because people are looking for work and um, farming isn't paying that much anymore with global warming and everything right. that's happening. So there's a lot of people that are moving from the rural areas to move into the urban centers. Um, and the urban cities are not um, developing enough to absorb large populations of people migrating. And so as a result, I think in Nairobi, you have about 60% of the population living in, in informal settlements, uh, historically often called slums, but, but informal settlements. And so please tell us about these informal settlements because that's, that's a lot of people. Yes, indeed. And because of the rural urban migration and because the economy is not developing enough, um, fast enough to absorb the people, most of the people who come looking for work end up living in informal settlement, which are basically, they are informal in the sense that there is no roads or a planning, urban planning, for example, for issues of mobility, sanitation, etc. So 60% of Nairobians actually live in informal settlement. Tell us about the, the, the food aspect in uh, informal settlements and in particular the importance of street food because of course that's the area in which you got involved. So tell us a little bit about the importance of street food. Well, um, so if you live in the low income areas, first of all, you don't have space to cook. So what usually happens is that you would buy your food from someone who cooks it outside on the streets, etc. And also if you live in the informal sector, settlement, most likely you work in uh, low day wage um, uh, jobs. So basically what you earn, you, you spend it most on buying cooked food. And because you can't afford expensive restaurants, you just buy it in, in the street foods. And that's where we kind of come in as Kwanza Tukule, the company that I founded, focusing on making food affordable for, for the low income people by targeting food vendors. And so the, the, the people who, who, who live in these informal settlements often go to work. Uh, and, and how many times a week are they going to uh, buy from a, 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 a street vendor? Well, so um, usually early morning, people would wake up at about five, some even four, and then walk to where they work. Normally, it's in the light manufacturing industries in Nairobi, so industrial area. And there you get work like, say, offloading stuff of a van or, or manually moving things around, and then you get paid. So in the morning on your way to work, you stop somewhere. Normally, it's usually the same vendor, eat your breakfast, and then at lunchtime, you would stop at near where you work, and then a 30 minutes break, and then have lunch there. So that food is made by someone, mostly women, that then serve, serve you. Some people pay 
on a daily basis, others pay on a weekly basis, depending on the arrangement they have with their, with their employer. So I think this is a, a, a great background to help us understand Kwanzaa Tukuli, the organization that you created uh, three years ago. It's, it's an impact enterprise, and we're going to discuss this. And of course, one of the goals is, is to help people get food and quality food at an affordable price. And I think also along the way, one of its goals is to alleviate poverty. So tell us about the meaning of Kwanzaa Tukule and, and also tell us what the company does. Okay, so Kwanzaa Tukule in Swahili means first, let's eat. So it's, it's a okay. popular saying and, and it was founded by myself. And the focus is to, like you said, make food affordable and accessible for the many people that live in the low income areas. So. F food, primarily we focus on staple food, things that people really, really need, like flour, like cooking oil, sugar, and things like that. So we would, we would supply food vendors with those uh, food products. And you have two types of customers. I think you have little stores, and then you have the people who sell food. Is that right? Yes, indeed. So we target uh, kiosks that sell food and people who actually cook the food. So majority of our customers are women who buy the products from us and then they would cook and then sell it, usually cooked fresh on the spot every single day. And we deliver to them the, the ingredients they need, mostly um, uh, non-vegetable or meat products that then they would, would deliver in the morning and then they would cook and then they would sell. And we do that every single day. So. Let's focus on this as a business model. And I understand, of course, that there's a human side to this story. And of course, we're going to come back to it. But let's look at it as a business for a second. How do you create value for your customers? What are the benefits that your customers are getting? So um, for us, we looked at the customer first. So our, our main focus wasn't necessarily um, being profitable, or, although that's really important, but the main thing was to look at how can we um, help this demographic access the products they need better, faster, cheaper. And then we developed a model in which we can source for the products directly from the manufacturer and in some cases enter an agreement with the manufacturers to sell the products even at a subsidized prices, then supply it directly to the, to the food vendor. We deliver value in numerous ways. One of them is first, we are very, um, we've innovated around the customer need. So we've kind of solved a really uh, pertinent problem to their existence. We deliver um, on a daily basis, which is what they need because they don't have storage. So it's not like a shop. Sometimes it's just under a tree. Sometimes it's behind a building. So we deliver every day. And then we do not have a minimum order, for example. If you want to spend like say a um, dollar to buy one small product, we would still deliver if you're on our route. So that kind of makes it easy for the customer to then um, partner with us because we're solving numerous um, um, sophisticated problems that only someone who really, really cares about the problem can then address. And our goal was to make it profitable from day one, like so that it's sustainable in the long run. Right, right. And, and, and that's what we, we are doing. Now, uh, one of the things that I believe you also do is you pre-cook some food. I remember watching on your one of your videos, and I think your explanation was, particularly when you look at proteins like beans, it's, it takes a long time to cook. And so it's difficult for, for those food kiosks to, to cook. So, so I think there's also, you not only supply them with, with kind of raw material, but you also provide kind of pre-cooked, almost finished food. Is that right? Yes, um, we, we, we did that. We used to do that. We were significantly impacted by COVID. So we've stopped doing that. But the challenge, for us was first for plant protein, it is very difficult to source and maintain consistent. So it became a bigger problem. But while we were doing that, there were other products that the customers was asking for that they actually needed a lot more. And what we did is when we introduced those products, the boiling became less of a problem for them, more can you at least deliver it to me regularly. So we, we don't boil now, we just sell raw products. Now, 
That's the value that you create for your customers. But for it to be profitable, of course, we have to capture part of that value. And of course, the goal is for you to not sell things at a prohibitive price, because of course, that would go against your purpose. So what are the capabilities? How did you innovate somehow the business model in order to be profitable um, in this relatively uh, price sensitive market? Uh, uh, relatively quickly. So what are the capabilities that enable you to be profitable? So the key thing that uh, enable us to be profitable, number one, is that we're addressing a need that's really core to how the businesses operate themselves. So that means that our products will be on high demand. They okay. definitely need us. Then the second thing is we innovated around making their lives easier. So they need the product, yes, but how do they need it? In what way do they need it? So we we like we deliver, we take small orders, we are consistent and reliable. This is something for the food vendors, especially on the reliability part. Normally, let me just explain how they would do it. They would wake up early in the morning, go to their stall, open up, make tea, and then take a a border border or a motorbike or a taxi to the nearest shop to buy and then come back. Those are hours they lose um, selling product or even being at their store to serve their customers. So when we deliver, we take away that cost and time. And then the second thing is even when they go to the shop, they don't know what they will find. The shopkeeper isn't geared towards what that customer needs. He just sells what he has. Whereas when we bring that product, we already know because they've already asked for it. Tomorrow, bring me X, Y, Z. So that means that the guesswork is taken out of their business, which is a lot of the labor that goes into managing businesses, especially small businesses owned by women. There's a lot of um, unpaid labor because there are no businesses that are designed towards solving the challenges that they experience on a daily basis. Now, some of this sounds labor intensive, the distribution. And by the way, my understanding is that you have uh, obviously drivers, but you also have people uh, who are kind of salespeople who are with the drivers and generally come from this informal settlement. Yes. So one of the things that we do to ensure that our customers are loyal uh, and also uh, depend on us is that we also provide employment. It, it's a win-win in two ways. We get security because we have a reliable person and uh, that, that, that really needs the job, but also we can hold them to count if anything goes wrong, but then the customer never leaves. So whenever we have recruitment, especially on the people that deal with the customers, we ask our customers, do you have anyone looking for work? And then we employ them in the areas they operate, they live, because then they don't spend a lot of money on transportation, they know the local people, and then we get um, more loyalty that way. And then the value becomes even more. So if you ask our customers, why would you buy from Kwanzaa to Kule? Like I personally go and visit and they would say, I don't know. I just, I just, I just like them. But then we know that it's all of these things that we're doing. All of these benefits that you've created. Exactly. Now, some of it also sounds technology enabled because you say, you know, we've known from yesterday, they said tomorrow, bring me this. So, so again, some of it is very labor intensive, but some of it is also high tech. So tell us about the technology dimension. So um, one of the benefits of Kenya is mobile penetration is at like mobile phone penetration is about 98%. Everybody has a mobile phone. Um, so for our customers, we have an app, they can place the order, but more importantly, they can compare prices. So our benefit is that we are more affordable than other competitors. So when they go into our app, they can see this is how much it costs for me to get products X. And if when they place the order, we can also predict the demand and then know what to stock in our inventory. Right. So technology enables us that way. Secondly, it gives us security because the areas that we operate in, we've got a lot of goodwill, but also people are unemployed. So we, we have to protect our cash, etc. And we only accept cashless payments. So we use M-Pesa for payments. It protects the customer, it protects us as well. So technology has really enabled us penetrate, but Thankfully, in Kenya, we didn't have to do the heavy lifting because right, right. the infrastructure was already, already existed, yes. I also understand that there is an integration between this app and your SAP system. So you also have 
a complex or a sophisticated uh, warehousing management system. So, so again, this is technology uh, that, again, we would often think about the labor-intensive dimension of this, of this enterprise, but there's also a sophisticated technology dimension. Absolutely. Things like uh, predicting supply and demand, we use the technology to tell us that. Stocking, making sure suppliers are paid on time, we use technology to do that. And then in addition to that, we use technology also to plan our routes. How many customers are in this route? Um, what is our delivery timelines? What are the KPIs that we are tracking? And technology tells us all of that. So with that, and we outsource our fleet, it, it really means that all we are managing is demand of um, the demand and the supply, and the technology is in the middle. And then the third thing we do is we make sure that our customer, our suppliers really understand the customer we serve. So. The, the, the companies that manufacture food products in Kenya, most of the people that work in their factories live in the low income areas. So I personally go and pitch to the manufacturer. And one of the manufacturers said to me, you know, the first time I went to speak to them, they said, I'm so glad you come here to serve the people who work for me because I cannot get my products to penetrate like in their homes. My products end up in large supermarkets, but I don't know how to get it to the people that work for me. So then that means we are bringing value even to the manufacturer because not only are they able to reach this demographic, but this is a growing demographic. Of Rural urban migration is gonna increase. Poverty levels are increasing. So it just means that we're kind of providing them the avenue to tap into a growing demographic and very cash, fluid you know there's no credit there's no i'll pay you tomorrow or sign here this give me your products here's your cash and and that's what's really appealing to the to the to the manufacturers and some of the manufacturers they design now we're convincing them to design a special product just for our customers and they're more than willing to do that uh now there are other organizations that have been doing some of the things that you're doing. To what extent do you have to think about competition and, and beating competition? Yes, so uh, I don't think about the competition or beating them because the competition that we have at the moment, um, they target very different demographics, okay. number one. Number two, we are very clear about the customer that we serve. Ah, so there's a strategic clarity here. Exactly. You're not trying to serve everybody in the informal settlements. Yes, we're very clear and deliberate about the customer that we target. And then number two, we're very uh, militant about understanding what the customer needs so that we stay profitable, we're impactful, and we can prove that the mod these kind of models work. So because we are very deliberate, the competition is not able to replicate what we do. We care so much, and if you care so much, then you do the extra work that most people might not be willing to do. Now, this leads us into your own leadership of this organization, because you care, but, but I guess you also have had to create a team around you that cares. So, so tell us about about how you've built a team and, and how you're trying and succeeding at inspiring them to keep this ethos? Yes, uh, thank you. That's a really good question. And it, the, the long answer is it's not easy to do. It, uh, it's a, there's a lot of learning and adjusting and um, sort of reflecting. For me, the... So you didn't get it right the first time? No, okay. <laughs> not at all. You try, it's, it's more of a trial and error. So what are the things that I have tried that do? It's easy to think that just because I'm committed to something, everybody else is willing to commit and sacrifice as much as other people are. So as a manager, it's important for me, for example, to know what motivates different people. And then com convince them or during recruitment, entice them to join the organization based on what matters to them, not necessarily what matters to me. So those are the kind of things that I have learned. But building a team in an impact, um, if your focus is impact, it's 
I find is, is, it's much harder, especially for a startup, to recruit the right talent because in the beginning you actually don't have the resources. You can't pay them very well. You can't pay them very well. Or maybe some, something small like you don't have fancy offices and okay. nice computers when they come around. Because when you're recruiting, you're also selling what you have as well as they selling to you. So you have to work harder to paint that picture of what the future could be like because you're selling them the future because you have not much on your hands at the moment. And that takes time. So they, there's numerous tactics that I have picked up along the way and hopefully I will continue to learn as, as I grow to build the company. But it is crucial that you have people who are um, committed in the beginning or at least um, get rid of the people who aren't to find the right people who are committed because the commitment is what drives you through in the start. If you think of, of, of all the time that you work in a week, how would you divide your time between, I guess, customer acquisition, uh, customer maintenance, employee acquisition, management, uh, stakeholders, suppliers? So, so what are some of your, your, your three, four, if, if, you, if you plan your week, what are the three, four things that you say, um, I, I always need to do some of this? So number one is customer. By, by customer, I mean, ability to generate revenues and continue to do so. So at some point in the day, either in the morning or in the afternoon, we will have a chat with our CEO operations, where are we at, how are we performing? That, that I do on a daily basis now. Maybe in the future I'll be doing it on a weekly basis. Then, so that's customer, meeting customer needs and making sure that we're generating revenues and, and doing Because every day you have to sell. Every day we have to sell. Um, so now so it's not just we deliver and uh, there's a hustle aspect. Uh, there's a hustle aspect in the sense of every day we have targets of how many customers we need to add because okay. we're, we're a startup so we need to grow. And then there's a, are we maintaining the customers that we already have? Okay. So we, it's not necessarily that we're calling people, but we're looking at graphs as it were. So my okay. job is just to say, okay, yeah, this looks like it's dipping. Is there products that we're not things like that. Then the next thing is suppliers. Okay. So we look at reports to see who are our key suppliers, where are they at, how are we doing with, have we paid them, whose who's invoice is due, etc. And then again also there it's more like reports. Then in the afternoons vans are being loaded but I speak to the sales team usually, how, how is it going, what are you doing today, etc. And then in between it's just calls with different investors, etc. Now, Kwanzaa Tukule thrive for social impact, uh, making the world a better place, offering food at low prices, quality food at low prices, and also enabling uh, individuals and entrepreneurs to, to develop their businesses. But you're also trying to do this profitably. So uh, to what extent are there tensions between these objectives, short run and or long run? And how do you think of these, these tensions? So. It's, it's interesting to me that at least for Kwanzaa Tukule, I'm not sure whether it's because we've done this deliberately, we don't see the tension at, at the moment. Because why do I say that? We are serving a, a demographic that has been neglected, that is overlooked, but is huge. So right off the back, we're able to um, generate revenues and even be profitable at a very short period of time which to me says um, if we spend a bit of time and look at what is the impact that we want to create and deliberately look at ways to be profitable within the impact, then it can be done. As we grow, we expand obviously and we invest and we might be um, tempted to look at other demographics. So that's where the tension might come in. But as of now, we're able to demonstrate that you can do good and do well. Or is it the other way around? Is one of your objectives to become very rich with this organization? Because most entrepreneurs, when they're not social entrepreneurs, one of their goals, of course, is to build a business. But they also say, hey, uh, you know, I also want to become rich. Yeah. Is that, is that one of your objectives? No, not at all. I, I, ah, so that's important. Then it's a good question. <laughs> no, not at all. I, I, material wealth doesn't, doesn't entice me. It, it, 
I don't like houses or cars or nice handbags. They don't. What really matters to me is um, the making a connection and making a difference. And that doesn't mean that I want to live under a bridge and be poor and like have no food. But it just means that I don't want to consume unnecessarily to make myself feel good. I feel good by talking to people. I feel good by making sure that I am adding value to people that I'm actually solving someone else's problem. And I can do that, I can solve my problem, I can solve your problem, you can solve someone else's problem. So I think it's, it's an ideological um, decision. Having said that, I wouldn't also say to someone, start a business and sacrifice everything for it. And, and make no money and live like really poor person because then what's the point, right? So I think there's a balance, but I personally, I'm not interested in, in, in being rich or having fancy. So, so one of my questions was, what is your vision in 2025 and 2030 and how will you know that, that you've succeeded? I guess what, what you just answered is, I want to grow this activity to more vendors, maybe more cities, again, in a profitable way, because I guess there is also a little bit of a compensation for you, but fundamentally the success is fulfilling the mission. Yes, um, the success is solving a problem for people that need a solution. If, if we can think about an issue that faces a people, a country, a community, and you can mobilize resources to solve that problem, what could be greater than that, right? I mean, that, that's the ultimate goal. So for me, Kwanzaa Tukule is in, as, is in as much as there are people out there that need our services, then we have to get to them. Not in a, in a, um, in a kind way. If you, if you speak to our customers, they don't even know Kwanzaa Tukule is an impact business. They'll just tell you, they're so great, I need them. And I think we meet them halfway because we need them, they need us. So it's kind of like a, equal, a relationship of equals, right? So Kwanzaa Tukule's plan is to grow in Nairobi, outside of Nairobi, other cities in Kenya. In fact, with our partners like Ilea, we're working together to develop an expansion plan to go into other cities, get more investors, other cities in Kenya, other cities in Africa everywhere. That, so that's you're also developing a model that hopefully will be replicable and scalable. Absolutely. And, and that's where the technology comes in. Because with technology now, many years ago, it might have been different, but still people expanded companies even before technology. But with technology, we can take what we've done and replicate it elsewhere. Number one. Number two, the people that we serve are almost everywhere in the developing countries. Everywhere you go, if you go to Cambodia, if you go to Lagos, if you go to Bangladesh, everywhere where the country is developing, people are working hard, they're manual laborers, mechanization hasn't happened yet. So what do people do? They work hard and then they buy food to eat. And most of them living in, in, in low, low income areas, they don't have the space to cook. So this is a problem that's going to continue and even get bigger and bigger. Now, Kwanzaa Tukule, what does it do in the small way that we're doing it? Starts a model. Then we want to bring on partners. You know, there are people out there with resources, with even more enthusiasm than I am, to breathe life into stuff that others have started. And that's what we want to do. But still earlier, you said to me, I don't think of competition because I think we do a better job than our competition to target our types of customers. Yes. So, so it's not just informal settlements. There's also within informal settlements segments that are more, um, I guess, attracted or, or that are going to be more uh, better. I don't want to say targets, but so, so there are segments that are more aligned yeah. with, with your model. Indeed, indeed. There are segments that, so like if I look at food vendors, if I look at kiosks, in every demographic that I talk about, they're nuanced. And for us, the food vendor, especially female food vendors that serve low-income areas, whether they live in the low-income areas and cook and sell to the people who live there, or they go outside and cook it for industry workers, that's our demographic. And that can be found anywhere. And it's not like a constrained by geography. 
and you don't necessarily try to go to that other segment or this other segment because they're already being well served by other folks. Indeed, indeed. So if you look at small, medium-sized supermarkets, for example, you have people who've done it and have been doing it for years. You have companies that are coming up that serve that market. And, and we, know, we know our market so well now, we have enough data, we can focus, we can innovate around that. So one of the things that strikes me is that, again, you are not a not-for-profit, you are a profitable or a for-profit organization, but with a strong uh, heart and a strong desire to make the world a better place, but that still requires you to be strategically sharp. How do we create value and how do we manage to capture some of that value? I think that that's a, a very interesting lesson already from this discussion. Looking forward, what are going to be some of the key strategic challenges for you as you try to expand in Nairobi, in other Kenyan cities and, and potentially abroad? What are some of, going to be some of the key strategic challenges? So the, the, the strategic challenges is ability to create um, the model in such a way that it's easily replicable. So what are we doing now? Now we're in Nairobi. We are launching a proof of concept outside of Nairobi to really interrogate the, the, the model itself and then seal any loops that they might be. So it's a pilot study. Correct. So that works. Then we then hopefully copy paste that elsewhere. And it's important to be very strategic and very business focused in this because if we are going to do this really, really well everywhere in the world, then we need to be um, militant about how we develop the model, how we monitor the model, how we uh, develop our KPIs, how we track them. So in that way, we are very businesslike. But in the way of looking for the solution, we, we listen, we reflect, we try, we, we, we innovate around it, we're soft on that side. But on the running, on meeting KPIs and delivering, we put on a different hat. Will your role evolve as, as the business continues to grow and, and how are you thinking about the evolution of your role? So right now I am the CEO, we are recruiting uh, senior level managers, we have COO, we have a finance manager, we have a CTO, so we're growing the top management team. I imagine my role evolving in the sense of not being involved in a day-to-day -day business operations. So we have 60 employees now, as they grow, I won't be able to do everyday checking with the sales reps what's going on. We'll have people to do that. So my role would be to say, how is the model doing? Can we launch here? Where should we launch? Who are the partners we can work with? Are we leveraging the partners that we have? Should we add more partners? What can we do to grow, etc.? Dealing with suppliers. So I see it more like a more visionary than day-to-day -day implementation of stuff. Are you looking forward to that or will you miss the daily contact with customers? Have you thought about that? Yes, I will miss the daily contact with the customers. Um, I, I don't visit them on a daily basis now, but even now when I drive towards work, I usually stop, have a chat, eat. I eat at the Kibanda, they're called Kibandas in Kenya. I eat at the Kibanda every day just to say, hi, how are you doing? And then also just listen to the customers and the way the women that we serve interact with their customers and how they talk to It's not just food, actually. That's another thing I wanted to mention. It's, it, the, the customers that we serve, they don't provide just food. They're like a therapist. They listen, they laugh, they joke, they, they push, they challenge, etc. So I would be stopping by every now and then. I will miss the customers, but I'm not gonna cut them out of my life for sure. Okay. Now, let's focus a little bit on you for a few minutes, if, if I may. So, um, you, you were born in Kenya, you were initially educated in Kenya, and then you went to the UK and, and uh, did an MBA there at Imperial College, and then worked for a number of years very successfully as a consultant and as also a tech consultant, and then decided to come back. So, so first, you grew up in a village in, in rural Kenya, and then you went on to study at university inside and outside of Kenya. A lot of people who grow up in rural Kenya don't get to do this. And so where did you get 
first the vision, the inspiration, and then the inner confidence to, to go do that. Where did it come from? Inner confidence developed <laughs> after a while, um, but I was born in, in rural Kenya, um, grew up in rural Kenya, and then I, I, I worked for a bank, and then I moved to London, like you say. Um, I think for me, when I would go back to Kenya every time on holiday or visiting my family, would go once a year, it, it was clear to me the differences, like food, um, felt in the UK there was lots of food, supermarket, food had been solved. Like in other places that I was traveling to, food had been solved, like lack of food, enough to eat. Why, why is this still a problem? I kept asking. And actually, a lot of Kenyans ask this question. If you meet Kenyans, they're very um, caring people, generally. Even if someone is not doing well, they always feel the responsibility that they have to do something for others to help others. So at the back of my mind, it's just how I was brought up, I guess. Um, but when your I- Your parents, I think your father was a teacher. No, my father wasn't a teacher. My father owned cows. He was oh, what we sorry. call pastoralist. Okay. My mom owned a shop. So my, my dad would help him run the shop also. So entrepreneurship or buying and selling things at a profit okay. and calculating. So, so that's a little making. bit from your education, from your early education. You saw your parents do that. Exactly, exactly. I remember in class, it was, um, if, if I was asked a maths question, maybe I'll struggle, but if, if the teacher used an example of buying a banana and then selling it, what's the profit? I would be the first one with my hands up. Um, so that's a little bit background of where the entrepreneurship comes. The caring, I think, is just the way we are brought up at home and also in the country generally, I would say people are, there's a lot of pressure to care. So that, that's where that comes from. Um, then why did I do it? Um, why did you come back? Why did I come back? If I, if I may ask yes, you. to Kenya. Uh, why would I not come back? It's so beautiful. It's okay. warm. Fair. My family is there. Of but course. even when I lived in the UK, I didn't leave Kenya with the intention of immigrating completely. Okay. Um, it was always to go experience, study, and then move back home. But to do what was the question. So when I moved back to Kenya, I thought, I'm going to take a year off and do nothing, but maybe volunteer. And so I took a year off. And then in that year off, I volunteered for an NGO. I volunteered for a political activist, helping him out, uh, ran a campaign. Actually, there's a show on Showmax that they did about his life, that I'm in it also, just helping him out a little bit. Um, and then that's when it hit me that actually I could do something about food. It's, it, it's, not, it's not as difficult as water, because um, you don't need infrastructure. And it's not as difficult as healthcare because I don't know much about healthcare. Food, I thought you didn't need expertise. Like you could use MBA skills, life skills to do something about it. So I thought I would do that. And then I wanted to bring all the learnings that I've gathered in the bank, uh, MBA, um, consultancy, to solve a problem that's quite basic and quite simple because if it was too complex, then I wouldn't be able to do it. So that's when we started with the boiling, women vendors, seeing what we can do. And then, but at the core, I knew that the, the numbers are huge. So scalability wouldn't be an issue. And that's why I did it. One last question on Kwanzaa Tukulu as such, and then I want to ask you about impact in investing and impact innovation. Uh, but you mentioned earlier we outsource the fleet, so you have these trucks, and of course, I guess these trucks run on on petrol. <laughs> Do you anticipate that at some point this is going to become an issue from an environmental perspective, or are we are we sufficiently uh, far from these pressures because we are still very focused on making sure that people have something to eat? So tell us about the environmental side versus the uh, the pressures that you might face in this respect so like um I, I completely agree with you it's not the best solution um we tried for example um solar um okay. powered uh tuk-tuks and and the the challenge is that the technology is not where it 
it should be to be able to run a business right. with. Um, so we, we piloted in, in Kibera, for example, we put one truck with a tuk-tuk on a solar, but it was running out of charge. And then we thought, well, we, we need to run a business, right? So we, we, we stopped doing the pilot. But when technology gets to a level that we can use, um, we will use. Okay. In the meantime, you do with what you have, of exa course. Exactly. Of course, of course. <laughs> so but, the, but the commitment is there. Like the commitment from our management team and myself included, there'll be no reason why we shouldn't use solar powered tuk-tuks and, and vans. When it becomes possible to exactly. do so. Exactly. So you're a promising example of, of an impact enterprise. Um, and, and of course, this is one of the new forms of entrepreneurship and also one of the new ways of, of helping to address poverty. Uh, so first, where do you see more possibilities for uh, impact companies? Uh, and, and, and also, where do you think they have a, a particular advantage? So I think the advantage is um, the, the, the numbers are huge. Like the market, if we call it a market, the market is there the demand is there. Um, the opportunities exist in the normal day-to-day -day things that people struggle with. So if you go to low-income areas in Nairobi, that I know very well, water is still an issue. And the challenge isn't that there are no people there trying to solve the problem. The key thing is that people spend enough time to understand how it currently works and then innovate around that. Because if you say, I start a company that provides clean water for free, then at some point it's going to run out of money to, to provide clean water. But people are still buying clean water. So where are they buying the clean water from? Who's selling to them? How do they access it? What inefficiencies currently exist? How can we work around those things? I think that there's huge potential and innovation around that. So there's water, there's food, there's healthcare, there's clothing, there's shoes, everything that everyone needs, transportation, sanitation, in all those, in all those um, sectors, not a lot is being done. There are companies that are doing it, but even Kwanzaa Tukule, what we're doing with food, Kwanzaa Tukule is a very small company for a problem that really existed for many years. So huge opportunities. The good news is, investment is now flowing, like people are looking at it. In fact, Kwanzaa Tukule, we've managed to attract some investors. I don't know what it used to be many years ago, but now, you know, you can actually approach investors and say, I'm an impact entrepreneur and you can pitch to them. So tell me about this. What do you pitch to them? Well, so you pitch the impact. Okay. You pitch um, your model. You pitch your um, ability to scale. You pitch your teams. You pitch your capability and your history and why you care. And if it makes business sense and it has an impact, then investors will follow through. What you didn't mention is, and I'll pay you back. Oh, yes. And you will pay them back in equity, of okay. course. If, if you're pitching to investors that will take a part of your company, if you're pitching to investors that will give you debt, very different. Okay. But obviously, yes, you pay you back. It's not a grant. However, so, so those are investors. That's why you use the term investors as opposed to donors or philanthropists. Exactly. Exactly. If you're pitching to grant givers, like uh, companies that will give you grant, very different sets of requirement, very different sense of um, amount of effort required. I personally wasn't approaching grant investors. I wanted someone who can hold me accountable, but also the process is also straightforward because I still have to run a business, right? So if, if the grant investment requires a lot of reporting, it requires a lot of tracking, it requires a lot of KPIs, I, I still need to get the products to the customer, for example. So you have to look at what's out there. Or you could, um, you could get an investor and still get a small grant. As long as these things are aligned towards creating a business that is sustainable, 
that's also okay. But now we're at a stage where we can do that, especially on the investor side. There was very few investors that were investing in this sector. But now it's easier because if someone is willing to give you their money and you pay them back, either in equity or pay them back their money, then this it, it's reassuring because it means you're doing something right. They believe in you. Right. Right? Right. But then now you have to convert that belief into something that actually works. So now you've got, they trust me and accountability on top of that, which is good for an entrepreneur. It's energizing and energy focusing. Yes. <laughs> and now you've got a boss also, which is a good thing, because it's nice to have someone to tell you, okay, now what are you doing? How is it going? Social entrepreneur versus NGO versus political activists. Uh, I guess a little bit of each will be great, but what is great about social entrepreneurs? I guess one aspect you've mentioned is the scalability. Because it's profitable, we can do more and more and more. <laughs> Whereas philanthropy doesn't have legs. Is yeah, that yeah. the idea? Yes, that is true. And, and, and luckily I have done all. Remember that one year I took sabbatical, okay. I worked with a political activist, anti-corruption campaigner. I, I worked for an NGO volunteering, and then I decided to go on to entrepreneurship, impact entrepreneurship. So I went through the same journey and the comparison that, 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 that you're allude, alluding to. The, the, uh, at least in Kenya, NGOs play a huge role. Um, one, what they do is they, they keep the government in check. So yeah. in Kenya, for example, we've made a lot of progress in political uh, space, people being able to speak for themselves. We have a new constitution that's quite revolutionary uh, on paper. Um, we, they, there's a lot of work that NGOs have done in the grassroots to get, uh, to, to get people to hold government to count. And that creates, I guess, a better regulatory context. Indeed. And also it, 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 it makes sure that um, there's another party that the government is afraid of, not afraid of, but, you know, mindful, mindful, of. mindful of if the citizens are apathetic. So that's really important. Then um, political activism, also crucial. So how do we make sure this government delivers on what they said they would do? In the long term, all works towards the goal. Entrepreneurship solves the problem now, even if it's for a few people, which is why I think I navigated towards entrepreneurship because I'm quite an impatient person. Naturally, I want to see things happening, what is going on. At least we're doing something now, not in the next 10 years. So altogether, though, it pushes the country to a better place. What advice would you give a young aspiring impact entrepreneur? Um, don't give up. <laughs> that would be a good advice. Uh, think about sustainability of the business. You know, it's good that we're doing good, but it's also important that it's sustainable, that at some point it's profitable. And be so the capturing value part matters. Absolutely, because the capturing value matters because not only are you making a difference, but the person you're making a difference for appreciates it and values it. So they, they don't feel you're giving them something for free. So that really matters as well. Then bringing the right partners. There will be people who are willing to help you. One, actually being open to help and bringing in the right partners. So that would be the advice, yeah. Any specific advice for female entrepreneurs? Yes. Um, know your numbers. You know, know your business really, well, that's probably really true for everyone. Yes, yes. <laughs> but there's a there's a there's um there's a gender bias that women might not know the business okay. well. So it's important that so you. So it's even more important that you show you do. Exactly. Combat the stereotype. Exactly. Okay. So, for example, for Kwanzaa Tukule, it's very easy for people to think because we're dealing with women vendors, then it's something small, nice on the side. I spend a lot of time demonstrating how much value is locked in the female vendors. And I use numbers. I say, look at our revenues. 
We have done really, really well in a very short period of time. Why? Because there's value in here. So that's interesting. So, so what I'm hearing is I don't get frustrated about gender stereotypes. I just beat them by basically saying, you might be thinking this, let me show you why you're wrong. And it's actually, I like it because it means um, somebody who underestimates what you know, you already have an advantage because it's easy to convince them. Now you thought I didn't know, and now you, you would think I know so much, but I've only said a few things, right? So it's, it's like a tool that works to your advantage, but obviously being fully prepared is the most important thing. Have you sometimes gotten frustrated uh, about people not giving you a chance or, or, or again, people having stereotypes or, or not enough help? Because I see you today, of course, full of energy and, and incredibly inspiring. Are, are there days where oh, yeah, yeah. we were doubting a bit? Yes, yes, a lot of days. A lot of days. So for, for every like five people you meet that tell you oh, it can't be done, there'll be one person who says, oh yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, let's do it. You're doing amazing. And then that keeps you going for like every other 10 people you meet. You just remember, but, but I remember so-and-so said I'm doing okay. So yeah, every so day. You, you meet more no's initially, more no's than yeses. Yeah, many no's, even from your own employees, you know? So you meet people and they're like, I'm not sure it can be done, but you just but it can be done. Look, look, so-and-so said over there that it can be done yesterday, you know. Let, let's, come on, let's do it, let's do it. And I think usually people say no because they don't understand, one. Two, they say no because they can't help you. And if they can't help you, it's actually easier that they say no. You, they go to one side and you find the people who can help you, right? So if someone can't help you, and they use all these other reasons or assumptions, etc. It's a good thing. So maybe another piece of advice for impact entrepreneurs is it would be good if you start with a high level of energy and a high level of commitment to your own idea. Yes, and, and have, the have the data to convince yourself that it's true. Because sometimes what happens is the entrepreneur will keep telling people, oh, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And you're looking for reassurance from that person. Sometimes okay. it's not even about they investing in them. It's more telling you, yeah, it can be done. But if you're looking for that outside, there's a risk because eh, the person might not really care. They might just say, yeah, it can be done. But they don't care whether you do it or not. So now you've depended on their word but it, it's not based on real feedback. But if you know in your gut that this can work and then you go and test it and it doesn't work, then you have to say to yourself, it doesn't work, leave it once. But if you test it and it works, then you don't spend time convincing people. You just say, this, 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 I'm doing this. Are you gonna invest? Are you gonna help me? No, okay, go here, this, this, this. Go. Then it becomes not personal. It's not about, oh, they, they trust me or they don't trust me. It's just, I know it works. So again, the strategic focus and the discipline, the implementation discipline. Yeah, and, and having the data, like believing, right. because sometimes entrepreneurs can be, you have to be optimistic, yes, but you have to test it. If it really doesn't work, then you have to be honest, because no one else will tell you. Everybody will go, oh yeah, yeah, it's good. Yeah, come see me next week. Come see me the other week. And you just keep meeting them and they're not writing the check. And you're wondering, why are people not investing in me? But deep down, people can tell whether you believe in yourself, right? So we conduct this interview at the end of an intense week here on campus. And of course, this week gathered you and about 30 other impact entrepreneurs uh, coming from all over the world for the one-week residential part of, I think, a one-year journey called Leading for Impact. And this program was enabled by the ELIA Foundation, an impact investment organization that, that you're, you're working with and that is, uh, that is supporting you, and also in conjunction with the ELIA Center for Social Entrepreneurship here at IMD. So this Leading for Impact journey has been going on for about a year. Of course, there was this week, but there would also been a number of discussions before. Can you share with us, I don't know, two or three insights, uh, ideas that have struck you or stimulated you from this journey, and maybe one or two things that 
either you will be doing differently or you are already doing differently. So what kind of impact have we had on you? I, I think the greatest um, impact is first, I was able to leave the business for a whole two weeks it will be. So okay. that was, that's really creating space, creating space for thinking. Okay. for thinking and letting the model be over there. Then the second thing is um, here we get to connect with other entrepreneurs right. Right. and I learn from them a lot. Some of the challenges they're going through, some of the things that they have overcome that I am going through, some of the business techniques that they use. Um, it's very empowering to hear someone else has done X, Y, Z about X and you are doing the same thing or you're thinking about doing the same thing. So we learn from each other. I really like that. There's a sense of community also okay. that we are together in this. We're doing something good. Um, we're working hard. There's some traits that we share. So there's camaraderie, which as an entrepreneur, you don't get, especially as a CEO. It, you can be on your own most of the time facing your own problems that and, no and not, one else... And, and not necessarily able to share your doubts with, with your, your folks. folks. Yes, uh, indeed, indeed, because most of the people you speak to also are people that are depending on you to make decisions and be sure right. and be uh, have the conviction. So, exactly, like you say. So it's it's a safe space to to to... to connect. Then the other thing is learning. Like for me, it felt like we were all throughout the 18 months, but now in particular, you're in class again. You can switch on the part of your brain that is now just absorbing knowledge, reflecting knowledge, you know. So sitting in class, the last time I was in a classroom was many years ago when I did the MBAs. I am a student again. I have a pen and a paper. I'm listening to someone tell me stuff, stuff I knew, some new, some books to read. So that is uh, profound. Then the other thing is the partnership, obviously. We had a great university. Elia is here. They're supporting us. They're doing amazing work. It's incredible. It, it has this feeling of being part of something bigger uh, than just your little company, you see. You mentioned earlier, find the right partners, find the right investors. Um, what is Elia doing well for you? How are they, by the way, full disclosure, we wrote a book with Peter Vifli, uh, disclosing and explaining the Elia way. But, but so, uh, and so we believe that it is very effective, but you've been involved in, I guess, at the receiving end of this. So. So what are they doing that's particularly helpful for an impact entrepreneur like you? So there are a couple of things that are important, like at a macro level. So if I look at a country like Kenya, for example, um, the things that the government is doing or can do to alleviate poverty and make life easier for people, right? And then there are businesses, established corporates that do what they're doing, their part in terms of solving problems by monetizing that. But innovation around um, problems that are quite large, like say access to food, affordability, water, healthcare, that the government's is unable or unwilling for whatever reason to solve, to have companies like Elea that say, we're gonna fund this concept. We will look at it, we'll support it, we will see if it, um, if it sticks, and then make sure that it's sustainable. That's profound. So Elea and other impact funders, it's, it's a, sort of like a new area, hardly 30 years, are doing profound work for humanity, full stop. But in my experience with Elea now, in particular as an investor, um, when I was speaking to Elea in the beginning, uh, the company was really, really small. I didn't even have that many people working for me. It's like myself, I didn't even have a management team. So what, what Elea does, did and still do, is enable me, develop all the tools around creating a company. Okay. okay. So uh, recruitment, growth plans, models, 
questioning, nudging, supporting, giving knowledge, financial support, bringing other investors, because we have Ilea and four other investors, so five in total, that Ilea opened the door for. Where would I have had the time to even find investors? Right. And you know, attracting investors is a special skill, even for someone who lived outside of Kenya for over 10 years and was a banker, it's like zero knowledge about that world. So to, to open the doors for, for Kwanzaa Tukule is incredible. And what I also heard is that the network of organizations in which they invest uh, and, and which they support can also provide considerable source of information and also, as you said, community and energy. Indeed, and, and so for example, in, 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 just before I came here, me and my management team visited another company that Elea invested in, in Nairobi. And we shared a lot of knowledge back and forth and learnings of things we can do better, things they're doing, where they're at. Where would you get that kind of knowledge? Nowhere. I mean, if we just went as ourselves to the company and said, hey, can you tell us what, do they'd be like, what do you want? Just get out Who of here. Yeah, yes. exactly. So the, those kind of platforms are incredible. Khadija, I hope that this discussion, uh, A, was as energizing for our viewers as it was for me, and B, also maybe encouraged other individuals who might have somewhere in them the desire to, to create an organization that will try to solve a problem, again, in a, in a profitable way uh, and in a, in a scalable way. Uh, and maybe also that some of the folks who watched us are saying, maybe I can uh, invest in some form of uh, impact investment firm to support the work that they do, supporting entrepreneurs like you. Thank you so very much and all the best to you. Thank you so much. I am the, the pleasure is mine. I've thoroughly enjoyed this and thank you for making me think <laughs> hard about some of the things that I had forgotten, like how we, where we came from, how we developed and things like that. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers.